This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. With the holidays upon us, we're bringing you even more conversations from this year's IdeaFest, which took place in September on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. On today's episode, which media can I trust? In recent years, the reliability and trustworthiness of news media has become an increasingly controversial topic. In a conversation moderated by Cap Times investigative reporter Caitlin Farrell, five media experts talk about the public perception of the news media, from issues of bias to constraints put on reporters in the modern newsroom. The panel featured Jerry Bader, communications director with Media Trackers and a former talk show host. What's fake news? It is whatever supports your team. James Causey a columnist and reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. If a story doesn't get the right measurables, we're, we're told that maybe we don't need to do that type of story again, or maybe we should write that story in a different way, maybe put a different headline on it. Mary Batari, a reporter with the Center for Media and Democracy. Well, here's the thing that reading multiple sources and making sure that you tell both sides of the story doesn't do it doesn't get to the real facts. Shannon Sims, a news anchor with WTMJ-TV in Milwaukee. History is important, and I, and I feel sometimes that we lack remembering history because it's repeating itself. And Mike Wagner, an associate professor at the UW-Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication. The story is that trust in the news media has been declining precipitously for 40 years, and that's probably not going away anytime soon. A quick warning, due to issues with the mic setup at this talk, you'll hear some audio feedback in the beginning of the recording. Now without further ado, let's get things started. I'll let Caitlin take things from here. Let's first start with Mike. Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about your, your your research, or just as you've sort of been paying attention to um, discussions of bias, credibility, public opinion? What have you seen as far as the media ecosystem in Wisconsin when it comes to um, people and the way that they trust or don't trust us? That's a great question. That's a big question. That's a complicated question. Um, I, I would say that to begin with, what people mean when they say the media varies really widely. And so with research I've done with uh, Mallory Perryman, who got her PhD here at Wisconsin and is now a professor at VCU, we asked people um, an open-ended question in the survey, what is the media to you? And there was no answer that, that drew anywhere close to a majority. The answer that got the most answers, or the most responses, was CNN, was what people said. That's what we mean when we say the media. But there were lots of answers, Fox News, the New York Times, my local paper, 
my local TV station, uh, Facebook. A lot of people say Facebook now uh, or, or Twitter uh, when they answer that question. Talk radio got a, a fair number of responses too. And so the answer is very widely. When we ask what do people use, they tend to say they use local television the most. Uh, there's a decline in newspaper use that's that's been going on for, for several decades, a decline in broadcast television uh, watching as well. Um, people say they use local TV the most. When we ask them what they trust, they trust local TV. They tend to trust newspapers. They don't trust uh, cable. They especially don't trust cable that has a different ideological orientation uh, than they do. And so in the state, that I think that's a pretty fair representation of how things operate. Um, it's also the case that lots of people trust uh, talk radio hosts um, or trust uh, talk radio or news radio programming, whether that's AM or, or uh, national public radio type things. And so it's, it's a vast array and it is partially in the eye of the beholder in terms of trust. It's partially in terms of medium. But overall, the story is that trust in the news media has been declining precipitously for 40 years and that's probably not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really rough. Uh, Jerry, I'm curious. Um, I guess if you're if you're comfortable kind of talking about this, what how you think about um, your role or what your role was doing a talk radio program? I mean, he had said that that amongst some of the listeners who would listen to you would you'd garner the highest trust levels, um, and you know I think probably. There's folks that that feel that you would be offering them something that they can't get, they didn't see in the headlines, or that maybe wasn't approached fairly um, from other media outlets. And then other folks might feel that you're just um, really stirring up rancor and getting people all hyped up to go out there and be misinformed or something. So, how did you? How do you view? I guess what you did there, and then maybe what you do now when you are actually tracking the media. Well, to talk radio, I plead guilty to all the charges, uh, as specified. <laughs> One of the most distressing things we heard is when talk radio hosts were included as a source of news. Okay, that's And that's someone who did it for 14 years. That's how uh, talk radio became so popular, starting with Rush Limbaugh in 1988 and then local shows all over the country. I think it did serve a purpose. I think I served a purpose in the way that you described. We did cover stories. And that's where the lines got blurred. We did cover stories that the mainstream media did not. And that's where people mistakenly started calling us news. We were news-driven opinion. And I think what has happened as a result of that over the years, so, uh, you know, take in Milwaukee, Mark Belling, very conservative talk show host, breaks a lot of stories. He has great sources. I will, you do a survey and a lot of people are going to say he, he delivers news, okay? Just absolutely, however, from a conservative worldview. So what has happened over the years as a result of that is, in my opinion, is people consider that news. This, I think, contributed to what I call, and many others call, the tribalism today, where um, if you're going to be a consumer of news, you have an expectation, okay? You, it's, I'm going to hear what I want to hear. And I would say that's about 40, 45% to the right, 45% to the left, and then the rest are, are looking to be informed and using multiple sources. That puts those of you who do news on, on a large level for a profession in a difficult position economically. 
because you are either you're and it's all it's still about money your profit your employer's profit is driven by how many people you draw so it you're you try and, and listen i have respect for most of the mainstream journalists I know, uh, the Capital Times, I know Jesse Apoyan perfectly. I think she does a wonderful job. Um, Molly Beck, now the Journal Sentinel, thought she's always done a wonderful job. But it's a reality that when you realize there's an expectation that I'm on this team or I'm on that team, you can try the very best that you can, and you are still going to start subconsciously giving into that pressure. I. I there's got to be a large audience out there that sees me as what they want to hear. I, I, it's completely subconscious, but reporters are human beings, and it's almost impossible to fight that. And now, exacerbating that is conservative talk radio has gone from trying to present what the mainstream media did from a conservative perspective to what I call, and I've said this publicly many times, the Trump Defense Radio Network. That's what it's about. That's why she introduced me as a former talk show host. <laughs> because I wouldn't do that. Okay? I no longer that tribe that drove the profits. Dude, you're in the wrong room. Okay? So they took care of that. And but again, as a mainstream journalist, it's hard not to feel you need to be the counterweight to that. I'm not saying it's anything conscious. Again, I want to be very clear. And that's where I think the bias, especially today, we all have biases. We're all human. I think there are good reporters out there who try to maintain objectivity. 100% objectivity is impossible for a human being. And I think those forces, what talk radio has become, the expectations of the audiences make it uh, just very, very difficult. Yeah, I... Uh, I read the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, when it comes to national news, to try to figure out who's reporting to what perspective and why. You have to do that. You just, you have to do that. I know my answer is getting long-winded, so I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. You know, compared to what I do now, Media Trackers is called a conservative website, okay? That goes more to what we choose to report on. I mean, I still try to get both sides of the story, if someone from the left won't talk to us, I say, we tried. Sorry, they didn't. Uh, you know, but that worldview is labeled. Fox News, everybody knows, is, you know, even though they, they try. You notice they did ditch the fair and balanced. Uh, <laughs> can't imagine why. You know, so, so that you know, long-winded answer, I, I think it's, you almost have to point the camera at the consumer first to get the answer to that question. Now, continuing on the road of opinion and news and, and whether whether or how the degree to which people conflate that, J James, I'm wondering just how you, um, how do you view your role as an editorial writer um, and a columnist, you know, at working for a, a legacy media organization? Um, I don't know, how does what you do fit into the trends that we've seen, especially when, like, anyone can put an opinion online now and... Um, yeah, there, and, and there's so much noise, too, with everyone having having opinions out there. How do you feel like you fit? Well, I don't fit anymore because I'm not an editorial writer anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm a project writer. So, um, but what I do, I still write columns every once in a while. It depends on what the subject matter is. 
But um, what I can tell you is that every everyone in here has an opinion. Everyone. You know, I could say that it's gray outside, and someone could say it's blue outside. You know, so we have opinions about everything. I think what I try to do, or what um, what my what I really tried to accomplish was trying to create dialogue instead of debate. Um, debate is just about winning, and I think that's the world that we live in now. Everybody wants to win. You have conservatives who want to win, liberals who want to win, moderates who want to win, but everybody's trying to win. And in a process, no one's really talking about getting things accomplished. And so we have these arguments, we do these zingers, um, a lot of bloggers, a lot of talk show hosts, do zingers where they're trying to win our argument instead of trying to create dialogue so we can see common ground and get things done. I think when, um, when I did do editorial writing and, and when I do column writing, that's what I try to do. I try to bring a sense of common sense and try to create a space where we can create and have dialogue. When you try to have that dialogue, sometimes, especially in our comments section, they, people don't allow for that to happen because they want to have fights and debates. And in the process, you take out any kind of common sense that you can have in trying to get things done. I think we see it a lot in politics. That's where it happens the most. You know, um, we see it in every major uh, 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 talking point, especially in politics, where you know one side to say this, one side to say that, and then nothing gets accomplished. And then when you think about it, you say, "Is this really what the main topic is supposed to be about?" Um, I used to tease my wife when it came to politics. I used to say, "You know, how does this create jobs and improve the economy?" If it didn't do either one of those things, I didn't really want to have that conversation. Because I think when it, when it all boils down, if we're not having dialogue and moving the conversation forward, then we're just wasting each other's time and we're just falling back into our silos where we're just trying to win. And then and when it, in the very end, no one wins when we're just having debate. Um, talking to Mary now, I know a lot of folks in the media industry kind of say that a, uh, a solution to some of these problems and trust too is focusing more on investigative journalism and these types of big database projects that maybe there isn't as much room for lots of bias or framing, you know, whatever taints in that. I guess, how do you um, approach your work doing often investigative types of work and, and how might you respond to to critics who might see, you know, the organization that you work for as having a real specific agenda in maybe the types of stories that they pursue um, or, or how they how they write them? Where, where do you feel like you fit in with, yeah? Okay, good questions. Um, so, uh, so I work for the Center for Media and Democracy and we're best known by our websites, which is Alec Exposed, uh, PR Watch, SourceWatch.org. And we focus uh, not on everything in the world and not on every story that's passing by. We focus on the infrastructure of the right wing and pretty much just that and dark money and things like that. So. Um, in SourceWatch, we have we get millions and millions of millions of hits on our some, something like 180,000 articles that we're trying to keep to, up to date about industry front groups and dark money players and campaigns and elections, and. Um, and my and if you go to our about page, you'll see what we're about. Um, we don't hide the fact that we're progressive Wisconsinites, yay, and uh, and we are concerned about the influence of dark money uh, on campaigns and elections. Um, my concern about the media uh, structure these days is not so much 
um, bias. Um, we've had bias since the beginning of time, and we've had bias since the founding fathers and mothers and all that kind of thing. My concern is the fact-free reporting that is on the increase, <laughs> and on the steep increase, and the outright propaganda that's being generated out of that fact-free reporting. Um, we just went through a time period here in the state of Wisconsin where very large, big money institutional players moved into our state, and they passed dozens and dozens and dozens of cookie cutter model bills, many from ALEC, um, and we had a media that didn't report on these model bills or would not name these model bills. Um, I would call reporters at the, uh, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and the Wisconsin State Journal and say, okay, that model bill, uh, and you know that school voucher bill, that prevailing wage bill, these are verbatim model bills. Can you please mention Alec? Can you please mention the Koch brothers? Can you please mention what the hell is going on in the state? And um, I had, and there was pushback, and there was pushback particularly, sorry James, from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. <laughs> <laughs> From the, and like this is, you know, if I took the time to do a side by side and send it to the reporter, maybe it would get mentioned. But it's not my freaking job to do the side by side for an institution that's 30, 40, 50 times larger than I am. And we went through a time period where there's an institution called the Wisconsin Reporter, a Wisconsin watchdog, not to be confused, is named to be confused with the great investigative journalism outfit here on the campus, but actually um, funded by donors' trust and donors' capital, an anonymous vehicle for the Koch brothers' networks of funding to report 380-some articles on the Wisconsin John Doe and create, effectively, an alternative universe of facts. Anyone that has been involved in Wisconsin campaigns and elections knows that the governor was not allowed to raise $20 million secretly for a third-party organization, okay? So it was devoid of the facts surrounding the Wisconsin state of Wisconsin campaign finance law and created this alternative mythology, which I am kindly calling mythology, but I would now call you know outright propaganda. So the rise of these types of institutions are going to gobble up you know, the mainstream media if the mainstream media doesn't start reporting on them. We now have a situation where um, they are in concert creating a concept of fake news. Um, about CNN and really wrecking people's uh, uh, faith and trust in the American news. And uh, that is really on the rise. And listing Trump lies, in my mind, isn't going to do the trick on how to address this. One thing I know we discussed, too, um, and that I do want to turn the conversation this way, is how, um, you know, if, if we all acknowledge that people have biases and opinions, and, and people, who, including people who report the news, how, what does the ideal then reporter in the, the, what does the model kind of look like, I guess? And how, what are your thoughts, I guess, on how you personally um, approach your, your views and who you are and how that, how you do your job then when you kind of consider these types of ideals? So if I'm understanding you correctly, um, understanding that we all have our own biases, <laughs> However, when we become or when we act as reporters, journalists, um, our focus is to always be able to gather the information, report the facts, and give context to the facts. When we talk about biases, I mean, as she said, we've had biases, and he's also said we've had biases since the beginning of time. What that room looked like with biases were all white men at the time when we first were talking about this. And we are talking about having a worldview in order to 
give information to a larger audience so that we can have the dialogue that James Causey talks about, then that requires more people at the table that look like all of us that are sitting here. Does that mean that I have a bias when I come to the table? No, it just means that I have a perspective and that hopefully that in the conversation, in the dialogue, in the gathering of facts, because I will always gather facts and get both sides and bring some of those perspectives that may not have been thought of to the table, I will still be fair and accurate with those facts when I bring that information to my audience. So my bias does not come into play in gathering the information, nor does it come into play in having both sides. I think that what is responsible journalist, we are to be able to bring both of those to the table, both of those, those sides to the table, um, and ask the questions that need to be asked. Maybe our bias may come in asking of the question, but it's still my responsibility to give information to a wider audience that reflects both sides and let them determine where they want to go from there. Um, one, I guess, do you guys think that some of the uh, business challenges that are facing a lot of media companies at times can inadvertently then create products or incentivize reporters or encourage reporters to at times do work that might not be the most thorough or fair because we want to do something short, we want to have it be clickable online, we need to produce a lot. And to what degree, if any, do you think that there are external structural factors that affect then, are affecting the kinds of products that we get today? Do you feel like that's... I think we get shut. I, I would say, on, on, from, from my perspective in television, I would probably say in the last 10 years, I kind of realized the relationship that TV had to the sales department. You know, we, uh, we have to work together, right? If we don't have a product, they can't sell the product. And if the product isn't something that the consumer likes, then they can't sell that product either. But at the same time, they have to have a product. Um, and I would say that for us, and I can probably stand back. Um, I would say for us, or my experience, is that I've had ideas maybe shut down uh, because, oh, well, that was it. Speaking of shut down. Right? I, I, I've experienced maybe having a story idea shut down because we may have uh, a commercial on the air that it's, it's almost as if, are you sure that these facts are the facts? Are you sure that this is what happened? Because the consequence to running this story would mean that we would lose this commercial you know, spot. Make sure this is what we've had those kinds of conversations. And I have seen some of my colleagues where we've we've stood up and said, this is the story. This is what they're doing. And this needs to come out. And the decision has been made. Either we're going to go with the story and we lose the commercial or... We're, we're going to have to pass on that. Well, and I don't know if anyone else wants to piggyback on that, but kind of more, I was thinking too, in addition to some of the things Mary said, where it's like, uh, and I've been in, encountered this, not at the cap times, but other papers, where it's like, you're writing, you're covering, you know, the, legis the, the legislative session and everything that's coming through, and, you know, this bill says that or this, and a reporter, because they have so much is going on, newsrooms have less staff, we want things to be shorter, they might not really have the time or for whatever, there's structural reasons why they might not do a side-by-side -side and say, by the way, this bill was funded, actually it's from Alex, it came from Alec, it came from Texas, this is all the dark money behind it or whatever, like, it would be, would, they should or would be great to really be thorough and inform citizenry, but there's, you know, structural reasons or external factors why that might not be the case. Um, I guess, do you, does I, anyone else have an opinion or a thought I, on what we're seeing as yeah. far as, as that? 
Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're talking about. Now, I think we do that a lot at the newspaper today. There's, you know, our staff. Hmm. I, I've survived probably like 14 or 15 buyouts. And when you think about how many times our staff has been cut and cut and cut, it's, it's, it's small. Yeah, I, okay. I, I agree you said our staff is, we still have one of the largest staffs in the, in the entire state, Dang. but um, it's not what it used to be. So we don't get to cover the things that we used to cover. And it's, it's a lot of times people call us, say, hey, this is a story. You should do a story on this. And you hear reporters saying, oh, we just don't have the time. I don't have, I'm working on five other things because everyone is doing a job of like three and other three and four other people just because the people are not there anymore. So that does happen. And another thing happens, and this is just for you guys in here. We pay attention to how many times people click on a story, how long you spend time on a story. Um, we have measurables that we can look at. And if a story doesn't get the right measurables, we're, we're told that maybe we don't need to do that type of story again or maybe we should write that story in a different way, maybe put a different headline on it, or maybe not spend as much time working on it. That's the secret for you guys. But now, you didn't, I'm just telling. But that's what we do now. And we have to go to that model just because we don't have the staff to cover every single story. See, the, the problem I face as a, uh, a journalist of color in a newsroom that's nearly all white is that I get a call calls from Hispanics, Blacks, Hmong community. Everybody wants me to do the story because they know I could tell it in a different way, in a different tone, in a different voice, and based on my perspective. Unfortunately, I have to turn down so many stories because I can't do it. And that that means that um, <laughs> I'm working a lot because I'm trying to make everybody happy, but at the same time, I'm making myself miserable. <laughs> and I used to... Right now, I'm working on a project on trauma and childhood trauma, and I spent this like this entire summer working on the 53206 zip code and talking with kids about trauma. And that's, I jokingly told our boss, working on this story about trauma is giving me trauma. Right. So, yeah. so what, one thing you need to understand is that reporters, uh, it's a reason why our jobs are considered one of the worst jobs to have in the country, because we take on a lot. You know, this is my mm -hmm. time to... So you can feel, so you can feel for me, but you have to understand we take on a lot. Shannon takes on a lot. I know she does. And all these people up here take on a lot because we we're doing a lot of work with a lot less people. I would j jump in and just agree with those points and say that in the last couple of decades, the structures that govern how reporters produce their jobs cause all kinds of things that we might call bias, but not in the way that most of us mean it. Most of us mean liberal bias or conservative bias, but there's other kinds of bias, like I have a deadline, and if I'm on television news, it's six o'clock, the news starts, whether I'm ready or not. So I have to have my story done, and if these people would be great to talk to and they don't call me back, or they're not willing to go on camera, guess who I'm gonna use? The person who calls me back and the person who will go on camera. Or if I'm at the Cap Times, when Jesse Apoyan, one of the political reporters there, came to talk to my class in the spring, she said that she's expected to write three to five stories a day, which stopped my students from complaining to me about how hard I was making. <laughs> <laughs> but if the, the, you're going to be forced to make phone calls to people who you know are going to call back, and that also might bias the, the the evidence you can get from sources. So maybe if you're doing a, a story where you're telling a side about the governor 
and decide about the governor's opponent. Well, maybe the governor's opponent wants to get in the news. So Senator X is willing to call you back herself because she wants the coverage and the attention mm -hmm. to that issue. Maybe the governor doesn't want the attention on that issue. So a spokesperson emails a statement. Mm -hmm. Well, that's less good because you didn't get to talk to them. So that gets buried further down in the story because you didn't gather it yourself. And so people who make the news recognize these structures. The economics of the situation, slashing newsrooms, uh, like we were just kind of talking about, cause problems. And the just the deadline pressure of the job also caused different kinds of biases. And all of that is related to the clicks and the shares and, and those sorts of things. And in research I've done, when people search a topic on Google that was in a headline, the news, news organizations are more likely to keep covering that issue. When right. people don't yeah. search it, they become less likely to cover that issue. It's kind of the, a broad-based example of, of the kind of the thing we, uh, James was just talking about. And, and I, would, I would jump on both there, absolutely. And I was going to make the point that I, I don't want James' point about click count to get lost. It's critical. Click count is unforgiving. It's, I mean, you know exactly how many people are clicking on that story, sharing, and so on. Uh, Radio, television ratings, always somewhat questionable, although metered ratings have helped that a little bit. Circulation, there's always been those of us not in print newspaper, they're always a little suspicious of those numbers. Bang. You, this, I mean, th there's just no challenging how many times that story was viewed. And I think you made an excellent point in calling that bias. And it's always been to a degree, as, as you pointed out, the battle between sales mm -hmm. and programming, which I fought for 30-some years. Uh, I mean, there, there were stories that were killed. Same thing that didn't, you know, you can't hack off the client. That was a news long before I was a talk host. You know, so those things, um, you know, what are people looking at, as James said, how long do they look at them? That probably is the most insidious bias right now and drives, look, if they're not going to click on it, if, if the headline can create good clickbait, it doesn't, doesn't make it. So we're still taking questions from the audience. I'm going to start moving into those, kind of going, jumping off a little bit about um, to a comment James had made, noting that as a person of color in the newsroom, you're, you're inundated from folks who, who think that you are particularly suited to tell their stories and maybe understand what they're going through in a particular way. Um, one question here is, I have acquaintances who could repeat everything and acknowledge that, that the panel stated, but then say, that's why I listen to Fox. So where does my conversation go from there? And I think that that's an important question because I think there's folks, I mean, many folks, and I know folks in my own life too, who voted for Trump, really view most reporters um, with suspicion and, and think that um, that there's not ideological balance in newsrooms and that because of that, that's going to then affect the way that they, they tell a story too. And that's why they're going to choose to, to go to a source that might, that fit them better. So um, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would just say that I mean, we're touching we're touching on it, but we're not talking about the, the crisis of American media is that it's disappearing, right? So mm -hmm. we've lost 400,000 journalists of, uh, over the last 10 or This is bad. 400,000 journalists because we've gone online. So we don't no longer have those articles. You know, we no longer have those car ads in the newspaper. <laughs> and the other funders that funded newspapers are gone because Ford is selling its cars directly through the Internet, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a huge, huge baseline crisis that I think all of us would agree that is a crisis. 
And um, where, where you go, this is what you say to your Fox News friends, we have to find solutions for this crisis. Fox News deserves funding, everybody deserves funding. And in Europe, um, media, I mean, a lot of us watch the BBC here, media is funded through the governments. There is a strong resistance to that idea in this country for one reason or another. So here's another way. Why don't we give everyone in this room a $100 uh, tax credit every year to support any media you want? Okay, so then if you want to watch Fox News, you can watch Fox News. If you want to watch, if you want to send it to Fox News, you can. If you want to send it to CNN, you can. If you want to send it to Jerry, great. If you want to send it to me, great. Um, they could support any media they want. But things like this need to happen because we're literally losing newsrooms. Um, in, in Ron Johnson's election cycle, Americans for Prosperity, the Koch's grassroots group, paid teenagers to knock on doors. They opened 16 offices. This was not reported in the state of Wisconsin, okay? This is an important thing directly affecting our campaigns and elections. And because of the shrinking newsrooms, nobody sent their interns out to say, what the hell is going on with all these you know, AFP office openings, except we did. And, um, and so, um, so we really have to find uh, concrete policy measures to address this crisis. And, it, and it's, it's a, a crisis for our democracy, not just for a profession called media and reporters. It's a big crisis for our democracy. I interpreted the question in a slightly different way, although I think that's a super fascinating set of points you're making. Um, but uh, I interpreted it as, so uh, through the lens of what that person seems to be saying is, um, these are all interesting points and we're all making an interesting dialogue, but the media are liberally biased and that's why I go to Fox. That's sort of kind of, I think the kind of inherent assumption behind that. And I think some things to say in, in you know, because I think one argument that gets made is when surveys of journalists are done, um, most journalists say that they're moderate. When we ask them on a scale from very liberal to very conservative, you know, where do you fall? Most say moderate, but more say liberal than say conservative. And that's been the case for about 40 years since we've been measuring that with some kind of uh, accuracy. So there are more liberals in the newsroom, and that's an undeniable fact. But when you, if, let's say right now your appendix bursts, do you ask the doctor, well, do our political persuasions match up? <laughs> Why do people assume that a journalist couldn't cover the news without being negatively clouded by their ideological bias? And in fact, when we study journalists and we cue them with claims that they are biased, they tend to respond by giving the, uh, the, the side that's perceived to be the other side the benefit of the doubt. They get a higher placement um, in terms of who gets the first quote. They tend to also get the last quote. Uh, they tend to be quoted verbatim and not paraphrased. And so they get a little bit extra uh, by complaining about bias. And so most journalists, most of the time, bend over backwards to fight the perception that they are ideologically biased. And so uh, I think so. One of the things I think people can say is that it's undeniably true that there are more liberals than conservatives in most newsrooms in most places in the United States. But there's not good evidence that that affects how they do their job on a systematic basis. And I think one thing uh, that is interesting to note that one of the reasons why I enjoy my job is that I've had the opportunity to meet people I would never meet in my life, on my walk, in my journey, that I might never meet. I also have the advantage of going beyond the yellow tape to ask questions to people that you may never have the opportunity to ask, the police chief, the fire chief. Um, but I can also give you an example. I remember um, in my first uh, on-air jobs in Spokane, Washington. 
Um, and I was the only African-American on air and had only and had been in the past 15 years. I then became the North Idaho reporter. Um, yeah, about a year in. And I didn't realize what that meant until my father called me one day and said, baby, you all right? You, is everything okay? And I'm sitting here going like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he had just seen a documentary on white supremacists in North Idaho being taken down by the FBI. So this, and literally, when I walked through Quarter Lane, I was the only African-American, and everyone pretty much knew me. So it was pretty cool. You said, I think there were some benefits. You know, you could go into Costco and get the hot dog and the soda for $1.65, and they would say, hey, Shannon, how are you? Um, but you know, that's on a lighter note. But I do remember, you know, going into those situations, and later on, um, the experience I had in Norfolk, Virginia, when I had to cover a um, cemetery that had been vandalized, and it was a cemetery of Confederate soldiers that had been vandalized. And I was asked to cover the story. Now, however I feel about the Civil War was not what I was going to do, because at the end of the day, it was about a person who had felt violated and that the, the dead had been disrupted. And it didn't matter if it was Confederate or if it was a Yankee. The reality was this person who I was going to interview felt like someone had come into that cemetery and violated their loved one. And that was the core of my story. Now, we could have a debate or a dialogue on what happened in the Civil War and why I was now a reporter and able to uh, tell his story. Now, he was about to turn around when he saw me get out the car. <laughs> but at this point, it was like, buddy, you want the story done? Or do, or do you want to have an argument about why you believe that I shouldn't be where I am? And I was able to do that story beyond what I felt about who that person was in the ground, because at the end of the day, my responsibility as a journalist was to bring you a story about a person who had been violated and why this was wrong. And we needed to find the person who was responsible for that crime. And I did that story. Now, I did that story fairly and I did it accurately to the facts. But again, I could have my own biases after I filed the story. Sure, but I didn't do that in my reporting. And so I think that that's important for people to understand about some of the, the challenges that we as women, men and women of color in newsrooms deal with every day on reporting stories. And, and I may have gone aside, but just trying to give you an idea of a perspective of what, what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and being fair and accurate. And, and if I could just say this, my, my perspective is a little bit different because you know I'm a columnist, so I, I can state my opinion. But um, one thing that I, you know, being a columnist, and especially a columnist of color, I always tell people that I don't, I don't really have friends because, <laughs> because and, and it's a reason for that, because I, I tell all the people that I cover and that I've written about, no matter if they're on my good side or bad side, if you do something wrong, finish this sentence, babe. I'm going to have to write about it. <laughs> you don't recuse yourself? No. If, if you do something wrong, I'm going to have to write about it. And so that's the perspective I keep, because I try to be as fair and balanced as I can be. And um, because of that, I, I put up walls between developing friendships with people. And oftentimes, as, as doing the type of reporting I do, people get really comfortable with me because I'm not the, I don't take out my notebook right away and I start jotting down notes. I, I talk to you. I try to get to know who you are and try to understand the, the whole you. 
before I start writing about you. And because of that, you know, people say, oh, he's my friend. And it's like, no, I'm trying to get information as a journalist. <laughs> and oftentimes when it, when it appears in the paper, they're like, I didn't know you were going to report that. And it's this whole thing comes up. And that's, you know, and this whole thing with fake news. I, I think fake news is anything that someone doesn't agree with. <laughs> that's the definition of fake news. If I don't agree with it, it's fake. But if I agree with it, I like it. How do you feel? I mean, one of the things that you just sometimes can be personally sad too is just the thought that in that climate where it's fake news and you know at the end of the day too like the, the old adage goes that you know some side is going to be mad at you either way and maybe that's how you know you're doing a good job mm -hmm. and so you could you know have a story that is is that has all the real facts that you know um super objective and fair and you know sometimes I just wonder if in this climate too um nothing well, what can work to start a dialogue? People are so entrenched in silos. You could write a, a beautiful story that is masterful, and at the end of the day, it just doesn't make it, it doesn't make a difference in starting a dialogue or in any way. Well, what I would what I would say about you just brought up the silos. I mean, we this week we had a perfect example, right, mm -hmm. of, of what happened with the reopen hearing on Judge Kavanaugh. Exactly. All right, so I I watched that all day long, and. I watched uh, Dr. Dr. Ford, all, not quite all nine hours, um, but close. I, I watched Dr. Ford and I thought, he's toast. Mm -hmm. I was I'm like, oh my gosh, how can you not believe this woman? Then uh, Judge Kavanaugh gave his opening statement. Wow, he's pretty credible too. Then he started answering questions. <laughs> and I, I, I just think he was dishonest. In, in certain answer. Her story's incomplete. I don't know at any point where I heard her say anything false. I can't say that of Judge Kavanaugh. So that's how I judge. All right, so that's me trying to listen to both sides. I start consuming the media on this. Mm -hmm. I mean, read the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal today. You want to talk about an alternate reality silo. They're, <laughs> they're, they're shaming Jeff Flake, who did have to be shamed, sadly, into doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's, and it's just amazing to me, you know, that you, you read these things and even in the news hole, you can, you know, what I would say is which facts take from, you know, which facts are emphasized and de-emphasized. Mm. Again, details. That, that's not intentional bias necessarily, <clears throat> but from, you know, whatever their worldview, this is the part of that story that's important. And then you'll see things that people felt were holes in, in Dr. Ford's story, be more prominent details, and, and so on. So, you know, that to me, I think what we saw this week is the perfect example of what James was saying earlier, you know, what's fake news. Um, I, I, I can tell you right now, uh, Jeff Flake's going to be crucified for being a traitor, and we can't believe he did this and everything else. But that's it. You know, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. It is whatever supports your team. Mm -hmm. I, I, can I this is a funny story. It happened to me uh, freshman year at Marquette in my first journalism class. Uh, the professor was standing in front of us talking. He had his briefcase. This kid runs in, snatches his briefcase, runs out. And he's like, oh, my God, did everybody uh, see that? Did you see what just happened? And so we're all trying to say, oh, yeah, somebody took your briefcase. He said, tell me about that person. Who, who was it? Blah, blah, blah. It was 
25 people in that class, we all saw something different, <laughs> right? Somebody saw somebody white, black, woman, male, fat, skinny, <laughs> tall, you name it. We all saw a different thing, but in our own perception, we thought we were right, right? So that, what I'm trying to say, you can send 100 journalists to an event and tell them to cover it. They're gonna come back with a different, slightly different story, but hopefully all the facts are there. Like the person showed up, he said this, this is a direct quote from him, and this is the shape of the story. But what I'm trying to tell you is that our biases creep up in what we emphasize, what we de-emphasize. And that's what makes journalism so perfectly imperfect. And that's why I like it so much, <laughs> because it, it, it's a little bit of me in every single story I do. And that's what I like about it. You know, I, I don't like to pay that much, but yeah. that's, that's what I like about it. And I think that's why I've been in the business for, you know, 30 plus years. But that's why reading multiple sources, sources is so important exactly. because everyone does have their own worldview. And that's not a bad thing. And, exactly. and that's that's doesn't have to be in the pejorative. But yeah, and that's what I do. You know, that's what I think. If you are going to try to be an informed person, you, you know, even if even if you know the outlet doesn't share your worldview. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really important to do that. Well, here's the thing that reading multiple sources and making sure that you tell both sides of the story doesn't do. It doesn't get to the real facts of the matter. P people in the state are constantly covering and covering stories and giving both sides, oh, look, there's a prevailing wage bill that's rolling back wages in Wisconsin. Here are the people for it, here are the people against it. Isn't that wonderful? That's complete bullshit. I mean, this is a is this is an uh, this is a, a heavily moneyed effort rolling from state to state to state to crush unions and to lower wages. Let me just tell you that Fox people who watch Fox News worry about wages, and people who um, you know go to our website worry about wages. The story is not being told in the right way with the right facts because of the collapse of our newsrooms. Okay, and so this this it is a baseline issue that we have to fund and maintain newsrooms, and and they, there can be newsrooms at a TV station, they can be local TV station, they can be newsrooms at the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, the whole world is now relying on the New York Times and Washington Post because they have the most robust newsrooms. I've been to James's newsroom many times over the past ten years. It is it used to be on two floors, maybe three floors. These people are now squished into half a floor, mm -hmm. you know, um, and this is a huge crisis for the state of Wisconsin. Are there other questions yeah. for us? Hey, we, we have to, I want to ask this one question and we got to go, unfortunately, but th this dovetails well into it because one of the questions was, um, you know, how do we restore history or context in stories instead of focusing on being the first to report the news and this hyper focus on on scoops and, and the Twitter universe and, and being first there. So taking the time to educate the audience um, and and is there, how are we gonna get to, to more in-depth coverage? And I can say as someone who does investigative reporting for the Cap Times and tries to really always educate, bring context to facts, it's always a lot more complicated than you think. Just a simple question like, what's going on with the transportation debate? Well, that <laughs> takes weeks to, <laughs> to unpack and, and is, is always a lot, it was like, geez, I thought that was just a basic question and it's, it's always complicated. So, um, I mean, there's gonna be differences in how that's done too, what, what context we include, how we educate. And so where do, where do we, how do we do that? 
I, I think it's important. I mean, while we do have newsrooms that have uh, constantly been shrinking, we also have digital now where you're you're able to put more information out that may not be able to go into the 30 second VOSOT or the 30 minute newscast. But now we've had this outlet of digital where more information can be posted Um Excuse me. Um, and even so more, uh, I do think that it's important to educate. I, I mean, even my own colleagues, history is important. And I and I feel sometimes that we lack remembering history because it's repeating itself. And so that's the fear that I have if we do not educate ourselves on where we were to where we are and then report what's happening now. Um we, we're, lo we're losing a lot of people and getting more opinion than, you know, the realities of having the dialogue that, again, James Causey talked about earlier to try to fix the problems that need solutions. Yeah, I, just to piggyback on that, and I agree with you 100%, we lost a lot of our institutionalized knowledge by letting a lot of these people go. I mean, these are people who would have been like your lifeline if you were on a game show and you would say, <laughs> okay, I need Jeopardy. to know the answer to this question. Do you know it? And it, would, it used to be those kind of people in the newsroom that could answer that question because they had that knowledge, that history, they've been there forever and they understood the city and how things became what they are today. A lot of those people are gone now because it's like cut salaries, bringing younger people and all this kind of stuff, and that's lacking, and that hurts us tremendously. It's like the reference librarian. How many exactly. people go to the library? You know, exactly. how many people go to the library? How many kids even know what the Dewey Decimal System is, less alone a card deck? I mean, these are things that I grew up with in a, a reference librarian. Right. If you didn't know, you went to the reference librarian, and right. he or she could help you. Now, unfortunately, a lot of us Google, and when we Google, we get blogs. We get, you know, we get opinions and no one goes to the about to see who this person is or what this organization stands for to have an understanding of where that opinion has come from. And that's vital, too. And, and I think without um, this institutional knowledge in newsrooms, it's incumbent on new reporters then yes. um, to go out and find those people in the community and figure out. And I try to take this approach, too. I mean recognize where your limitations of knowledge are, and then try to find the people who, who've been in the space a lot longer than you, have a different perspective than you, and, and get educated from them. Because yeah. you're not getting it in the guidance you get as far as the editors you have, not to throw shade there, but True. they're just not there anymore. And that's really frustrating, even as someone trying to um, develop and grow and get better, um, is trying to figure out how to navigate that. It's, it's really hard. So anyway, thank you all for coming. Thank you um, for listening. And yeah, have a good day. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Madsplainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in.